with the group in question, that being evangelicals. Research typically means words that come from the other side of a pulpit. That kind of mob mentality is what you get when you get 80 to 100,000 like-minded people in the same space, and the empowerment that comes with that, the strength and numbers aspect of it, can have a very, very strong influence, whether it's positive or negative, it can have a very, very strong influence. That's what evangelicals do today. They lean on their own understanding of things that are based on really bad sources of information, like right. their pastors. The agenda wins out every single time. And in this instance, the anti-vax agenda will result in deaths if left unchecked. Lots of deaths. There is no trace of the virus in the vaccine, live or dead, period. You cannot get COVID from the vaccine. Welcome to Unbound, a podcast for new atheists and lifetime atheists, ex-evangelicals, truth seekers, and free thinkers. There is life after faith. And life here is good. It's time for a new perspective and a better conversation. I'm Spider. And I'm Shell. And, and it's, it's time to get Unbound. Ponder with me the irony of a group of people who serve a savior who they believe at some point stretched out his arms on a cross, took nails in his wrists and in his feet to save them from the musings of his megalomaniacal father who had definite unchecked anger management issues and narcissistic tendencies. Yeah. And yet those same people won't take a jab to the arm to save the society that they live in. Yeah. This is what we're talking about tonight. I'm Spider. And I'm Shell. And tonight we are going to be talking about the subject of anti-vaxxers. This is another one of those society things that, this is another one of those things that isn't evangelical in origin, but it's one of the things that they pick up and run with because it's something that they can stir up controversy over. Mm. And there are reasons why they latch on to things like this that we're going to get into in a little while. First, I wanted to say thanks for coming back. We did take last week off. Spider just needed a little bit of a brain break, and mm -hmm. that was what it boiled down to. We've been running this hard since last July. I don't think that we've missed a week since last July. No, we have not. And it was just one of those things where I wanted to do this episode right. It just wasn't coming together. And I said, I'm going to take another week and try to piece everything together into a timeline that makes sense with this, because anti-vaxxing is not, it's not even a modern thing. No. It goes back to when vaccines were new. Right. And we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about the influences back then and how they relate to certain movements today, mm -hmm. the people that are involved, and the reasons why evangelicals in particular have latched onto this and are perpetuating it. And there are numerous reasons, none of them good, none of them based in fact, and we're just going to dive right in and start talking about the origins of vaccines themselves and the people who decried them way, way back. Yeah. I found a great article on a website called historyofvaccines.org. And this is an article called The History of Anti-Vaccination Movements. It goes all the way back to the smallpox epidemic that happened in the... Uh, I think it was late 1700s into the early yeah. 1800s. Yeah. There was outcry about this then. And absent of all the scientific data that we have access to now, it was a little bit more understandable back then. But right. it was still, as far as I was concerned, an issue of people not trusting the real experts. Right. 
they leaned on their own understanding, which is a very anti-evangelical sort of thing to do. But that's what evangelicals do today. They lean on their own understanding of things that are based on really bad sources of information, like their pastors and Donald fucking Trump. Mm. So that right there is problematic. But when you look at it in terms of people in the 1700s and 1800s, there was a little bit more validity to the apprehension of getting a vaccine. But it all started with an English physician and scientist named Edward Jenner, and he developed the vaccine for smallpox. He discovered that children could be inoculated from smallpox using the lymph from an infected person who had been vaccinated at least a week earlier, and also from the pus from cowpox blisters from cows. The lymph was harvested from smallpox blisters and applied to scores in the arm skin, which acted as a primitive vaccine. And I just wanted to read a little bit. It's kind of a lengthy quote from the article. And this is uh, actually, no, this is from another article from a website called verywellhealth.com, also covering the history of the anti-vaccine movement. And I just wanted to read this directly because I feel like the article says it better than I could. And it also gives you an idea of how far back the apprehension over vaccinating goes and what people were willing to do to make their voices heard and not get a vaccine. Quote, even before Edward Jenner began his landmark efforts to develop a smallpox vaccine in the 1790s, the practice of variolation, inoculating an uninfected person with pus from someone with smallpox, was used for centuries to prevent the disease in Africa, China, India, and the Ottoman Empire. In fact, Onesimus, an African slave, was said to have taught Cotton Mather, the Puritan pamphleteer, about the technique as far back as 1706. So this is not a new concept. It's not modern medicine. And it goes back even further. Primitive tribes in Africa, who knew nothing about science, understood that this was a way to stop a plague of sorts in its tracks. Back to the quote, Lady Mary Wortley Montague introduced variolation to England, referred to as inoculation in the West, having witnessed the practice in Turkey in 1717. As she encouraged the government to inoculate children against the deadly disease, an increasingly vicious debate ensued between proponents and opponents of the practice. It is reported that, quote, pro-inoculators tended to write in the cool and factual tones encouraged by the Royal Society with frequent appeals to reason, the modern progress of science, and the courtesy subsisting among gentlemen. Anti-inoculators purposely wrote like demagogues using heated tones and lurid scare stories to promote paranoia. It is a dynamic that differs little from the vaccine debate seen today. And that is so true. How many times have I said it on this show? People are not all that different from each other and we don't change much. There are very, very few variations in the way that we think about things. Different cultures will have different spins on these things, and they'll think about them from different angles, but these types of thoughts permeate us as a species. It has nothing to do with culture. It has to do with our DNA, the way that we are wired to think. So the arguments that were made for this way back then mirror pretty closely the arguments that people make about it today. Back to the uh, historyofvaccines.org article. Some of the reasons why people were against the smallpox vaccine. Um, Now, this is all going to sound very familiar. It's going to sound very familiar. Super familiar. Local clergy called it, quote, unchristian. Why? Because it came from cowpox blisters and shouldn't enter the human body because it came from an animal. Um, 
I'm sorry, but does that principle apply to your lunch? I'm asking for an omnivorous friend. Are we, is, is that okay? If we keep eating meat, we can put that in our body, yeah. but we can't use the pus from a cow to keep from getting a, a deadly disease. Mm. So yeah, unchristian because it comes from an animal. So did your roast beef sandwich, okay? I'm just yes. saying. General distrust in medicine. Now, this is an ongoing thing. It's gotten worse over time. And I will go on record stating that the spider is not all that trustful of a lot of medical professionals, only because the practice of medicine has become such a for-profit sort of thing. Yeah. That it leaves me skeptical sometimes whether or not I'm being asked to undergo treatments and tests and whatnot that are actually legit. And we've had run-ins with a couple of doctors, particularly dentists, yeah. who have told us one thing and then we go get a second opinion from another dentist and we find out, oh, no, 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 you don't really need that. So there are reasons to be distrustful, but we're talking about things that I can observe. I have a dentist telling me that I need a procedure that seems a little bit out there and then I go to another dentist and they say, no, you really don't. Well, what am I supposed to glean from that? What am I supposed to glean from the advice that I got from that first dentist? It sounds more to me like they're trying to pad the bill then they are trying to help me. So I get this. And right. this is kind of where my headspace is. I'm not very trustful of doctors and the uh, the medical community in general. But I also understand that if I get sick, like when I had my kidney stones, I need them. Yeah. And there are things that are necessary. And there are things that you really should be doing if your doctor tells you to do them. But if it seems a little bit out there, then I always say get a second opinion. And that's not just me. I've been hearing that phrase since I was little yeah. to, you know, always get a second opinion, especially on something that is serious, that's going to cause you to, you know, have your lifestyle interrupted if you follow that advice. But again, when we're dealing with people who lived in a world that didn't have modern medicine, didn't have all the scientific data that they right. could just look up and figure out for themselves whether or not something was legit, I completely get this too. They also talk about people spreading a rumor that smallpox was the result of, quote, decaying matter in the atmosphere. And there were other primitive conspiracy theories that revolved around that. Then there was the question of personal liberty. Mm. And where have we heard this recently? Oh, boy. With the whole anti-masking thing. Mm -hmm. You know, it's a violation of my personal liberty. Well, again, what about my liberty? Because your liberty ends where my nose begins. But that's neither here nor there. People will stand up for their right to do whatever they want with their body. And as we can see, this is definitely not a new thing either. Directly from the article, the Vaccination Act of 1853 ordered mandatory vaccination for infants up to three months old, and the Act of 1867 extended this age requirement to 14 years, adding penalties for vaccine refusal. I'm on the fence about that. Yeah. I'm really on the fence about it. On the one hand, some people need to be policed, and they need to be parented into doing the right thing. But on the other hand, there is the whole notion of this is my body. Right. And... I get both sides of it, but when you're dealing with something that could potentially kill a lot of people, I can absolutely see a local government or even the federal government stepping in and saying, okay, well, you know what? We're not going to give you a choice on this. This is something that you need to do. But as soon as you go from policy and law to actually invading someone's body with a foreign substance, yeah, that becomes problematic. 
And I can also see why people would be reluctant, hesitant, or even downright angry to the point of protest over something like that, too. My thoughts on the matter kind of lie in the middle. There are some people that you're just never going to convince. Right. But I think that as long as you can get the majority to understand reason and do what they need to do, then social Darwinism takes over from there. And it may sound a little cold-hearted, but if you're that stupid that you're not going to listen to what every expert in the field is saying and do what you need to do to protect yourself, well, that's social Darwinism at work right there. The laws were met with immediate resistance from citizens who demanded the right to control their bodies and those of their children. And we see this today, too. Oh, yeah. The Anti-Vaccination League and the Anti-Compulsory Vaccination League formed in response to the mandatory laws and numerous anti-vaccination journals started to spring up. And continuing from the same article, the town of Leicester, and you see, I can pronounce that because I'm from Massachusetts, okay, was a particular hotbed of anti-vaccine activity and the site of many anti-vaccine rallies. The local paper described the details of a rally as, quote, an escort was formed, preceded by a banner to escort a young mother and two men, all of whom had resolved to give themselves up to the police and undergo imprisonment in preference to having their children vaccinated. The three were attended by a numerous crowd. Three hearty cheers were given for them, which were renewed with increased vigor as they entered the doors of the police cells. This was part of the Leicester demonstration in March of 1885, where 80,000 to 100,000 anti-vaxxers marched in protest, raising banners, parading a child's coffin, and carrying an effigy of Edward Jenner. These people were serious. Yeah. They didn't trust this guy any further than they could throw him. And this was almost 100 years later. Yeah. So even after this guy is dead and gone, they are carrying effigies of him and vilifying what he was attempting to do. So that kind of mob mentality is what you get when you get 80 to 100,000 like-minded people in the same space and the empowerment that comes with that, the strength and numbers aspect of it that comes with that can have a very, very strong influence, whether it's positive or negative, it can have a very, very strong influence. Then in 1895, a commission was formed to study the effectiveness and safety of vaccination. In 1896, the commission ruled that vaccination protected against smallpox, but suggested removing penalties for failure to vaccinate. And as much as I think that there are some people that kind of need to be brought under submission in certain circumstances, I also understand that this was a good thing. Yeah. Removing that was definitely a good thing. The only problem is that now you are at the mercy of whether or not they're going to listen to reason now that they've gotten their way. And that does happen. Yeah. That does happen. Once you give somebody their way and it's not the us versus them thing that it was before, it can have a neutralizing effect and it can make that person start thinking a little bit more about the issue and it can make them start thinking less defensively and more pragmatically about the issue too. So there are good things that can come out of both sides of that. You know, you you tell people that they have to get a vaccine and more people are inoculated from a deadly virus. You tell people that they don't have to and now all of a sudden it's their choice and sometimes, sometimes they'll make the right one. Yeah. And then in 1898, the Vaccination Act removed penalties and also included a, quote, conscientious objector clause, giving parents the right to refuse vaccinations for their kids with an exemption certificate. So that was the outgrowth of all of this stuff that came to a head in 1885. But then, now keep in mind that that was in England, okay? Yes. 
Then the whole thing made its way across the pond into the Americas. Smallpox outbreaks in the United States around the same time led to vaccine campaigns and related anti-vaccine activity. In 1879, the Anti-Vaccination Society of America was founded following a visit from British anti-vaxxer William Tebb. In 1882, the Anti-Compulsory Vaccination League in the U.S. was formed and in 1885, we saw the formation of the Anti-Vaccination League of New York City. Also around that time, American anti-vaxxers sued to repeal compulsory vaccination laws in various states, notably in California, Illinois, and Wisconsin. In 1902, Cambridge, Massachusetts mandated a smallpox vaccination for all city residents. Henning Jacobson refused vaccination under what would become the My Body, My Choice mantra that we hear today on issues that range from abortion to masking to vaccination, in point of fact. The city filed criminal charges against him and he lost his battle in court. He then appealed the decision to the U.S. Supreme Court, who in 1905 found in favor of the Commonwealth ruling that compulsory laws could be enacted to protect the public in instances of outbreaks of communicable disease. So there's that whole double-edged sword thing going on right there. It's kind of a damned if you do, damned if you don't sort of situation, because if you let it go unchecked and enough people opt out, then a lot more people are going to die. But when you start putting people in jail for not complying or fining them for not complying, then that breeds civic unrest. So it's kind of a double-edged sword, but at the same time, sometimes, as the saying goes, desperate times call for desperate measures, and that's what this was. It was a desperate measure to get people to comply so that this thing could be stopped. Right. So we're going to fast forward a little bit, about 70 years, right into the mid-1970s with the diphtheria, tetanus, and pertussis vaccine controversy. Mid-1970s, controversy over the DTP vaccines arose throughout Europe, Asia, Australia, and of course in North America, because that's what we do. (laughs) In the UK, there was opposition in response to a report issued by the Great Ormond Street Hospital for Sick Children in London. The report claimed that 36 children had adverse neurological reactions following DTP immunization. There were television documentaries and numerous print media reports drawing public attention and inciting hysteria. An advocacy group called the Association of Parents of Vaccine-Damaged Children, or the APVDC, formed as a result of the reports also and generated even wider public reactions that ranged from concern to hysteria. Vaccination rates in the UK went way down, of course, and then came three major whooping cough or pertussis epidemics. The UK formed an independent expert advisory called the JCVI, the Joint Commission on Vaccination and Immunization, and the commission once again confirmed that the vaccinations were safe. But a breach in public confidence this time was actually started within the medical community. In the late 1970s, certain surveys of medical providers in the UK showed that some doctors were reluctant to recommend across-the-board immunization for all patients. Then Dr. Gordon Stewart published several case studies that he believed linked neurological disorders with the DTP vaccine. The JCVI countered with the National Childhood Encephalopathy Study, which concluded that risk of neurological disorders might not be nil, but was in fact very low risk, much lower than anti-vaxxers like Dr. Stewart wanted the public to believe. This led to a nationwide campaign in the UK to educate the public and answer a list of major concerns from the standpoint of science. What a novel idea. I know, right? The APVDC continued clogging the courts, seeking personal injury-related compensation. I mean, I'm just thinking about these shark lawyers. (laughs) 
that that yeah. buy time on daytime television and I'm reading this, but they were seeking personal injury related compensation, but were unsuccessful owing to the sheer lack of evidence linking the DTP vaccine to any kind of harm to the health and well-being of the recipient. The U.S. controversy began when the national media drew attention to the same alleged risks of DDP that had been refuted and proven false overseas. In 1982, a documentary titled DBT Vaccination Roulette was produced and released describing allegations of adverse reactions to the DTP vaccine and effectively downplayed any reporting of the benefits of getting it. Then we jump forward a few more years to 1991, and there's a book titled A Shot in the Dark that once again attempted to assert various risks with the vaccine. Parents formed victim advocacy groups to keep the vaccine away from their children, but scientific bodies like the CDCP and Academy of Pediatrics presented strong counter-arguments. Boy, this just keeps getting worse, doesn't it? It does. And you can see how it snowballs over time, too. Yeah. But, I mean, when you think about it, back in the 1800s, they managed to get 100,000 people, or around 100,000 people, to rally against vaccination. So, by the time 1991 rolls around, this is not a new concept. No. Not at all. Like in the UK, the controversy sparked a number of court cases that had absolutely no positive effect, but did manage to drive the price of the DTP vaccine sky high when various drug manufacturers stopped making it to avoid public scrutiny. Can you imagine? They were bullied into not producing the vaccine anymore. So, now something that is easy to get... Yeah, and becomes and, a little harder. Yeah, it becomes harder and it becomes more expensive because now demand is exceeding supply. And this is Economics 101. Right. Now that there are less doses, of course, those doses are going to cost more. Then just a few years later, 1998, and I remember this. Yeah, I do because too. There, it, was, it was a twofer for us because Liam was born in 99 mm-hmm. and this stuff started just about a year earlier. And there was a connection for us with some of it, too. In 1998, another doctor, Andrew Wakefield, called for a thorough investigation of possible links between the MMR vaccine and things like bowel disease and autism. Hmm. Bookmark autism. He later alleged that the vaccine had not undergone adequate testing prior to its distribution. The media descended upon these stories, which created yet another public panic. Wakefield's findings were published in a medical journal called The Lancet, which in 2004 stated publicly that the report should never have been published. That's significant. Yeah. That's very significant. And that's going to come back in a couple of minutes, too. Uh-huh. Keep in mind, this person was discredited, and the journal that published his work later apologized for it. Okay? Yeah. Bookmark that, too. The General Medical Council, an independent regulator for doctors in the UK, found that Wakefield had a, quote, fatal conflict of interests. He had been paid by a law board to find out if there was evidence to support a litigation case by parents who believed that the vaccine had harmed their children. There's that word, believed. Yes. They had no proof, but they just believed it because something was going on with their kids. In 2010, there was... And I don't know why it took this long, 2004 to 2010. But in 2010, there was a formal retraction of the Wakefield study and Wakefield lost his medical license. Keep these details in mind. 
In 2011, BMJ publishes a series of reports that showed that Wakefield was guilty of scientific fraud by way of falsifying data and that he saw potential for personal gain by making his false claims. No study since has found any link whatsoever between the MMR vaccine and autism. And while we're on the subject of autism, let's talk about thimerosal. Mm. Thimerosal was also a point of controversy surrounding vaccines and autism in the late 90s into the early 2000s. It's a preservative that has now been phased out of newer vaccines that came under a lot of scrutiny but had nothing but anecdotal evidence to back up the claims. But here's how that one panned out. In 1999, leading public health organizations called for the reduction and eventual elimination of thimerosal, quote, as a precautionary measure. You can read that as there was enough public outcry, we're going to take this out of here to shut people up. But there was nothing wrong with it. You can read that as, look, kids need these vaccines and we don't want parents having any excuse not to give them. But the preservative was not in any way, shape, or form harmful. In 2001, the Institute of Medicine's Immunization Safety Review Committee issued a report stating that there was not enough evidence to either prove or disprove that thimerosal causes autism or any of the other things it was blamed for, like hypersensitivity disorder or speech and language delay, both of which are features of people on the autism spectrum as well. Now, today... Thimerosal is still a thing, but you can only find it in certain flu vaccines. We don't hear anybody talking about flu vaccines causing autism or doing bad things to to people. The worst thing that's going to happen to you is you might get a little bit sick, but you're not going to get the flu because the flu vaccine does not contain a live virus. Right. You're not going to get the flu from a flu vaccine, but your body learning how to process the data from that vaccine could have some side effects, just like the vaccines for COVID, which we will talk about in a little while. Although the time periods have changed, the emotions and deep-rooted beliefs, whether philosophical, political, or spiritual, that underlie vaccination opposition have remained relatively consistent since Edward Jenner introduced the vaccine. Now let's talk about a wonderful human being named Jenny McCarthy. Mm. There have been a number of of celebrity anti-vaxxers. You can Google who they are. There have been a few. That's not a huge list, but there have been a few. But none of them ever had a bigger voice than Jenny McCarthy. For those who don't know, Jenny McCarthy found her spotlight first as a Playboy centerfold in the 1990s. She has tried her hand at acting, hosting talk shows, game shows, etc. She's done a bunch of shit since. Her involvement in the anti-vax movement started around 2007 and she takes many of her cues from Andrew Wakefield there's that name again mm-hmm. remember I said bookmark all of that stuff oh yeah discredited lost his medical license his report is removed from the medical journal that published it and there was an apology and yet years later many years later at this point here's Jenny McCarthy looking at this guy like he's some kind of a god She also likes to talk about how she, quote, cured her son's autism, which as a parent of a now autistic adult, I find patently offensive. Autism is not a disease. Nope. Let's just make sure that we've made that clear. Autism is not a disease. It can't be cured because it doesn't need to be. Right. It's a different way of thinking 
period, end of story. And because it makes us uncomfortable as a society to try to relate to people who are on the spectrum, we tag it with words like disorder, autism spectrum disorder. I don't even like that word. It's not a disease. It's not a disorder. disorder. It's just the way certain people think. Yeah. And that's that. And because the rest of society hasn't figured out how to effectively communicate with autistic people on all possible channels, well, there must be something wrong with them. No, different and wrong are two very, very different things. Right. They think differently. There's nothing wrong with how they think. So let's keep that in mind as we keep talking. The CDC declared measles as eliminated in the year 2000. They published a paper about the effectiveness of the MMR vaccine, and they declared this thing a done deal in 2000. Now, here's the thing about vaccinations that I don't think a lot of people understand. When they say that this was eliminated, what they meant was that they had a surefire, foolproof way of keeping it from growing and spreading. But the pathogens that cause all of these diseases measles, polio, you name it, they're still here. Yeah. They, they're they not around. going anywhere. It's just that we don't get affected by them if we are smart enough to get the vaccines. Right. They're, and most of the time they're talking about the United States or the developed world. Right. If you go to a third world country or someplace that doesn't have clean water or adequate food or adequate medicine, you're going to find stuff like polio. You're going to find stuff like smallpox even. Which is why, by law, you have to be vaccinated against a lot of those things before you go there. Right. If you are going to go to some tribe in, you know, the jungle somewhere that has never, like, seen people, other people. Which is a bad idea to begin with. Which is a bad idea to begin with. But if you're going to go there, you'd better be inoculated against all of those things. Right. Because they don't want you bringing it back here. Right. So in that instance, it's mandatory and needs to be because there's no necessity, quote unquote necessity, in making a trip like that. No. When you're talking about parents and their kids who are just living in England, let's say, then that's a much more gray area. But when it comes down to I'm going to leave my country and go someplace else and then potentially bring something like this back, oh, no. We can't have that because let's um, just look at COVID. Yeah. And what happens when someone from the other side of the world gets on a plane and gets off in a U.S. city and now all of a sudden we're all wearing masks for a year. By the time this is all over, it'll be about two years that we're going to have to all mask up. Okay. And that's all it takes. So in that instance, it's not just a good idea. It is mandatory. And in certain instances, it is a matter of international law. So, I mean, I don't think that you can even buy a plane ticket to certain places if you cannot prove that you've been inoculated against this, that, and the other. Right. So there goes your chance to spread it right there. They won't even let you on the plane. But getting back to the point that I was making before, the CDC declared measles eliminated in 2000. But current numbers, and by current, this was an article from... 2019, I think, showed over 700 cases of measles in the U.S. alone, the highest number since 1994. Yeah. So who are these people? They're children of anti-vaxxers who are getting this. In a 2010 statement, 
McCarthy openly voiced her support of Dr. Wakefield. 2010, when did all of this stuff go down? When did they finally get around to issuing a formal statement decrying what this guy had to say? Yeah, they retracted the Wakefield study in 2010, and he lost his medical license in so, 2010. So that was that was in 2010, but here's Jenny McCarthy pushing back. Yeah. These things were happening at around the same time. But you see, just like a lot of people, she heard what she wanted to hear. She believed right. what she wanted to believe. And the naysayers were just, I, I don't know what goes on in the minds of some of these people who just completely reject what the real experts have to say for their own opinions or the things that they believe. But we're not even talking about an evangelical here. We're just talking about somebody who thinks like one. Yeah. And she went as far as to say that Dr. Wakefield was being discredited to prevent an historic study from being published. And she went on to describe him as, quote, one of the world's most respected and well-published gastroenterologists. He was neither. (laughs) In 2013, she joined The View as a co-host. And this started a firestorm of criticism from journalists, doctors, and other actual experts in the fields of vaccination and autism research. They rightly feared that giving her that kind of a mouthpiece would lead to the further spread of errant information on vaccinations. And that came from an article from archives.cjr.org. And again, link's going to be in the show notes. But I also found another interesting bit from insider.com. In a letter to ABC at the time, Slate writer Phil Plate said that, quote, Ms. McCarthy is a vocal activist for highly dangerous health ideas, including the mistaken belief that vaccines cause autism. While the world suffers outbreaks of measles and pertussis, Ms. McCarthy continues to advocate against vaccines. Having her host a respected show like The View would damage its reputation. And then there's Michael Spector of The New Yorker, who also stated that McCarthy was, quote, the show's first co-host whose dangerous views on childhood vaccination may, if only indirectly, have contributed to the sickness and death of people throughout the Western world. And that is not an exaggeration. No. I've used the term passive murderer before. Mm-hmm. Well, that's what this is, too touting all of this bullshit and using your clout as a co-host on one of the top morning TV shows or daytime TV shows in America to keep feeding this shit into people's brains. Right. I'm sorry, but that's what you are. It's and for, for me, it's a very black and white issue. Katrina Vanden Heuvel from The Nation also wrote that McCarthy's anti-vax beliefs, quote, have been roundly dismissed and discredited by doctors and scientists who insist that her claims are based on no scientific data or research. And again, link to that one is in the show notes as well. Now, I want for us all to bookmark this as a precursory comment on the dangers of belief as it relates to this subject. Jenny McCarthy may not be an evangelical. Her background actually is Catholic, but she is the perfect avatar for how evangelicals think and behave, at least in this instance and about this thing. Right. Even with the truth literally in front of her in black and white, she chooses to believe the charismatic self-proclaimed expert over the sound findings of trusted medical and scientific bodies on at least two continents. And I'll add to that list of adjectives opportunistic because it was a very opportunistic thing that Wakefield did. 
She also has enough momentum behind her to fuel widespread rejection of sound, observable scientific evidence in favor of messaging based on nothing more than the signature emotionalism and sensationalism that drives evangelical thought and behavior. It's nice to know that her stint on The View was relatively short. Barbara Walters couldn't put up with her bullshit and was vocal about not wanting her on the show anymore. And when you have to choose between the trusted opinion of a reputable journalist with decades of experience behind her and someone who got her claim to fame showing her tits in Playboy, then who are you going to side with at that point? One significant thing that I have learned about evangelicals is that their specific agenda is a very small platform. Their key initiative is spreading their beliefs and continuously broadening their audience to reach more people with their messaging. They almost never start conspiracies. Instead, they latch onto things that already have widespread attention throughout society and perpetuate the worst kinds of thinking about them. Why? Because they know that their biggest demographic is always going to be people who prefer to let other people do their thinking for them. And I think we all know that that accounts for an alarming number of people out there. So when they find issues like anti-masking and anti-vaxxing, they jump on the conspiracy bandwagon and start touting conspiracy as truth. And people believe them. Right. And... Once they have people's attention, they follow through with their spiritual messaging and having already established trust with the people they want to influence, they watch their support base grow, church attendance numbers rise, and most importantly, donations increase, even if it's only temporary. Because at the end of the day, they don't care about the people. They care about what those people can do for them. And they care about what's in their wallets. (laughs) That's most of it. So let's talk about evangelical hysteria in particular with all of this. This comes from an article from DW.com. I had to vet them. I never heard of them before. Never heard of this website, but it is a trusted source. Their main site is actually a German news site. Ah. And I'm not even going to try to pronounce the name of it, but you can trust what they have to say. And the link to this is also in the show notes. I got a couple of quotes here and then some bullet points that I just gleaned you know brainstorming what they had to say in the art it's a very very good article and i think you should read it but quoting directly from the article critics have accused right-wing fundamentalist pastors of perpetuating baseless theories that encourage their flock to ignore public health data and experts fighting the coronavirus some unfounded claims include the assertion that the vaccine is the mark of the beast or will cause sterilization in women Now, how many marks of the beast have we seen just in the last few years? They said the same thing about masks. And UPC codes. Yeah, well, that goes back. That goes back a ways. Yeah, you want want a good, funny read? Look for a book called When Your Money Fails. You can get it on (laughs) archive.org. Yeah, you don't even have to pay for it. That's great. You can rent it for an hour. Right. And that's all it takes. But, oh, yeah, no, it's, it's, it's very short. But back to the subject of vaccinations and this so-called mark of the beast. Well, you know, in my mind, I think that there, that, now there's nothing to it. There's absolutely no. nothing to it. But when you look at it from an evangelical perspective, there's more to that when it applies to masking. Because you currently can't walk into a store and buy or sell without this mark on you. Okay. So when you look at it from a purely anecdotal perspective and try to squeeze together a few parallels, Mm. masking is much closer than vaccinating will ever be. Yeah. But 
they still consider it the quote-unquote mark of the beast because there's a government telling them that they need to do this, forgiving the fact that no one is forcing them. No one is tying them down and jabbing a needle in their arm. Nope. That's why I say there's really not as much to go by with this issue as there have been with a couple of very recent past issues, not the least of which being masking. So you want to look for the mark of the beast, then at least find some parallels. There aren't any with the vaccine. So here were a few of the things that I thought of that came through the article and also from my own experience. Evangelicals, for whatever reason, well, I know, I know what the reasons are, but they continue asserting that the virus isn't real. Mm. And they assert it because everyone from their pastor to their miscreant messiah of a president has been telling them for quite a while that it isn't real. Pastors and televangelists who acknowledge it continue promising protection in exchange for continued loyalty and financial support. You know, like the mob. (laughs) Um, Yeah. It is in the best interests of pastors of large churches to acknowledge it because it creates another avenue of fear that they can allay with baseless promises of protection and immunity. Like the mob. Like the mob. (laughs) They perpetuate distrust of any scientific, social, or governmental body that refutes the validity of any of these promises. Many sects, especially white evangelicals, take their good versus evil delusion to extremes with anything that has a good conspiracy theory, or really any conspiracy theory, good, bad, or otherwise behind it. And finally, evangelicals in general distrust and reject science at every turn. I don't think that I have to backtrack and give all the examples that we've already gone over on this show of that one. But here are a couple of uh, quotes from the article. Pastor Tony Spell of the Life Tabernacle Church in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, has been noted for defying pandemic guidelines since the coronavirus reached U.S. soil. He has held mass church gatherings when state regulations deem them illegal and also rejects warnings that the pandemic is dangerous. And he is far from the only one. I think we've mentioned him before, haven't we? Probably. I think during, during, I think it was episode 19 where we talked about, I think that one was was called COVID-19, When Toxic Faith Goes Viral. Yes, I think that. that he came up there. And here's what this sick fuck had to say. Mm. We're anti-mask, anti-social distancing, and anti-vaccine. He believes that the vaccine is politically motivated and will ultimately make you sick, even though available evidence points to the contrary. He says that he will continue to discourage his followers from taking the vaccine as it is distributed throughout the country. So there are two ends of the spectrum. You've got the megachurch pastors who want you to believe it and want you to believe that they are able to protect you from it. And then you've got the ones that, for whatever reason, don't want you to believe in it at all. Do these idiots not understand that if they kill off their congregations, there go their mansions and their jets? I don't know. You know, I don't understand why you would want to tell people that this isn't a real thing. But just the simple fact of a pastor of a large church coming out and saying, in so many words, we're anti-mask, anti-social distancing, and anti-vaccine is disgusting. Yeah. It's it's disgusting on its best day. Yeah. And my mind is a blank. Yeah. As to why they would, why anyone would want to perpetuate this. Because there's a whole hell of a lot more money in making it real and getting people to believe that you can save them from it. Right. So I don't know what the motivation is there. But a Pew Research study in July 2020 revealed that nearly 70% of the public have at least 
heard the pandemic was planned by so-called elites, and 36% of those polled believed it was true. These are not evangelicals. This is the public. Yeah. So one out of every three people out there. Why do you think it's so infuriating having conversations on social media? Yeah. One out of every three people out there, more than one out of every three, believes that there was conspiracy behind it, that it was something that was planned. Right. Another quote from the article, suspicion among Christian conservatives surrounding the COVID-19 vaccine is a culmination of decades of growing distrust in science, modern medicine, and what is described as the global elite. It's also the root of the larger rejection of vaccines that have for decades helped nearly eradicate several serious diseases, including measles and polio. The fear among many right-wing evangelicals is that global leaders are making decisions without biblical input and against the will of the Christian God. I'm sorry, but you're talking about a God who doesn't understand that you can't have plants without photosynthesis because we had plants three or four days before we had sunlight? Right. Okay, this is what your God understands about science. So who gives a fuck what he thinks about this particular issue? Let's not forget that Donald Trump was and continues to be a major influencer in the minds of evangelicals about this. He has called COVID a hoax more than once. He's made light of wearing masks, was almost never seen wearing a mask. I mean, you saw him holding one once in a while. I don't know if I ever saw Donald Trump in a mask. He received the best possible medical care when he got it and told people who couldn't possibly afford or even gain access to some of the services and treatments he did that it wasn't all that serious. Don't let this disrupt your lives, people. It's not a big deal. Mm. He also believes that vaccines cause autism and tweeted about that more than once. How many times have we talked about his influence among evangelicals? And I mean, we don't even need to. Evangelicals have been perpetuating a multitude of conspiracy theories about the vaccine beginning in summer of 2020 when the major vaccines currently available were still largely in various stages of testing and development. This reminds me of the fan base that destroyed that has destroyed several movies out oh, yeah. there like Solo. Right. And the Ghostbusters reboot by getting on sites like Rotten Tomatoes and leaving them zero ratings before they ever hit theaters. Well, this is the exact same thing. Evangelicals have picked up on some of these conspiracy theories more than others, but all of them have gotten the attention of evangelicals in small and large churches all across the fruited plain and across the world, to be perfectly honest, particularly among evangelical leaders. And that's where the real danger is because your average pew sitter, you can sit there and just think that they're crazy. But when it's your pastor your spiritual leader, then these kinds of opinions and conspiracies start gathering clout. Remember, if your pastor says it's true, it's true, period, end of story. That's the way most of them look at it. So let's take a look at some of the more popular conspiracy theories that are out there. And I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on these. They're just, they're too ridiculous to spend time on and try disproving them. I mean, most of them just disprove themselves with the sheer idiocy that they project. So let's talk about disappearing needles. Now, the first time I saw this, the one thing that I thought of was, you know, like a stage prop. You got a knife, the butler comes up, and jabs the knife into somebody. Well, obviously, you're not being jabbed with a knife. It's a stage prop. 
But this is what people thought was going on when they saw this one video. The whole Disappearing Needles conspiracy theory hit Twitter after a video uploaded by the BBC showed a patient getting a shot with a self-retracting safety needle. The video shows the needle going in and, quote, disappearing, which many decided was a CGI blunder or the use of a low-budget prop syringe. No, it was a syringe that is designed to retract once the vaccine is delivered. Right. It's just, it's it's a neat little safety feature. I don't think I've ever seen one. I don't think I I know I've never had one used on me. Mm. I might at this point (laughs) once my name makes it to the list and I can find a place to get one. Yeah. Because it's difficult in Massachusetts. I'm just putting that out there. Yeah. But it shows the needle going in and not coming out. And that's where people are like, see, 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 they never got the shot. Yes, they did. This person got the shot. The needle retracted back into the syringe so that it could be safely disposed of. Period. End of story. That's what happened there. Then there was the whole conspiracy over the invisible dead nurse. And no, the nurse herself was not invisible. It's <laughs> just that there were no images of her. Of there, it, it was classic, um, not conspiracy theory. What am I thinking of? Um, urban legend, basically. Yeah. There were Facebook and Twitter posts alleging that a nurse died hours after getting the vaccine. There were no names, there were no pictures, there were no news links or um, available vaccines at the time. No one had gotten a COVID vaccine when this one started. Yeah, you heard that right. This one started before vaccines began being distributed to first responders and healthcare workers or to anyone for that matter. Then there's the conspiracy theory that alleges that the COVID-19 vaccine causes Bell's palsy. And this is an ailment that has side effects that weaken or paralyze facial muscles. So no, Bell's palsy, not a thing either with the vaccine. There's also a 27-minute video out there called the Ask the Experts video. Um, Good luck finding it at this point because it's basically been banned everywhere. I'm, I'm sure with a little bit of digging, you can find it. It included fake testimonials and, inf- and information sources presented to scare people out of getting vaccinated. And it's nothing but conspiracy theory bullshit. And a lot of the stuff that we've talked about tonight, from what I've heard, is at least part of the narrative with this. There are at least elements. I haven't seen it. I really didn't feel like <laughs> making the effort to try and track it down, but it caused a little bit of a shitstorm, more than a little bit of a shitstorm when it was out there and it was only out there briefly. Then there's the whole notion of microchip tracking. Don't take the vaccine. It's got tracking chips that the government can use to track your every move. Um, you mean like your cell phone? Yeah. I mean, I, I had this conversation with a friend of mine not long ago where we were talking about EasyPass yeah. and getting an EasyPass transponder and how he had avoided that for years because he didn't want a tracking device in his car. He's like, but I would probably get one now if I was going to do any significant amount of traveling because with all due respect, I've been walking around with a tracking device in my pocket for about 10 years now. Yeah. So, and he's right. He's absolutely right. And then there's the Bill Gates conspiracy. I think everybody's heard about this one too. Yeah. This conspiracy theory asserts that the founder of Microsoft funded development and deployment of COVID-19 to be able to sell vaccines from companies in which he has heavily invested. Let's just make sure we understand something. Bill Gates has more money 
than his great-grandchildren's great-grandchildren will ever be able to spend. The notion that he would unleash a virus on the entire world to make money is ludicrous. That and the theory lacks that one thing that evangelicals like to avoid at all costs, proof. Mm-hmm. There's no proof to this. But I have heard this one come out of various evangelical circles more than once. Oh, yeah. I've heard the whole Bill Gates thing. It's like, so you're running Windows on your office computers at the church? Might be time to switch to Linux because if he's that evil, then why would you continue supporting him? Yeah, right. This one's my personal favorite. And it's the one that says that the vaccine alters your DNA and does what exactly? Turn us all into Ninja Turtles? Okay, well, okay, that that was snarky and uncalled for, but that's okay because so is most of this bullshit that they're trying to get us to believe about a very safe very effective vaccine. But since I had to turn the volume up on the snark, here's the real answer from The Atlantic. Quote, a public hesitance to purchase genetically modified foods combined with concerns about the nature of gene editing technologies such as CRISPR, C-R-I-S-P-R, might have influenced the altered DNA narrative, especially given the newness of the vaccine's mRNA technology. So that comes from an article in The Atlantic. And yeah, you know what? There's a part of me that says this happened very, very quickly. But there's also part of me that says that they also have start points when they are looking for vaccines. Mm -hmm. So a lot of the data already existed. There are previous vaccines for previous strains of coronavirus. There were things there that they could access. There was information that they could access and pull from to be able to get the process going a lot faster than they would have been able to if this had been something truly novel and not just a novel form of coronavirus. The medical and scientific community have understood coronavirus for a long time. It's a variant of SARS. So we all have heard about SARS in the past. This is the same thing. So research had already been done on this and a lot of it. So it was really just a matter of coming up with a way of dealing with this particular strain and the variants of this particular strain. Because guess what? There are variants out there. And that's kind of sparked some bugaboo within the general populace also. Oh, now we've got that new version that was found in the UK. Well, now that's in New York. And now it's in Connecticut. And now it's here in Massachusetts. But here's the thing. It's so closely related to the original COVID-19 virus, that the vaccines are effective on that strain too. And they're effective on other variants of COVID-19. So even though this thing is mutating as viruses do, all viruses mutate. And that's why we had bovine coronavirus vaccines years ago. And we needed a new one for this one because those mutations take place. But the variants here, they're so narrow that at least for most of the variants that have cropped up now, the vaccine is taking care of them as well. So we don't have to go back to the drawing board, as it were, and come up with another vaccine, at least not yet. I mean, nature can throw any kind of curveball it wants at us. But for right now, the vaccines that exist are taking care of COVID-19 in totem. And that's very, very significant to understand. The last of these idiotic conspiracy theories is a simple one, and you've heard it about pretty much any other disease out there, and that being that you can get COVID from the vaccine. Um, How? 
there's no COVID in the vaccine. Right. Now, some vaccines do contain dead viruses. There are a lot of different kinds of flu vaccines. And most of the ones that you get for your annual inoculation do have dead viruses in there so that your body learns to recognize what they are. Your body starts to recognize the proteins and starts building antibodies so that if the live version of it shows up in your blood, it knows what to do with it. And that's the way that vaccines are supposed to work. They're supposed to teach your body how to deal with these foreign bodies that come in. So, no, you cannot. Hear me again. You cannot get COVID-19 from a COVID-19 vaccine because this particular virus is not going to be combated that way. It's combated, it's combated on different levels, and there is no trace of the virus in the vaccine, live or dead, period. You cannot get COVID from the vaccine. But like we've talked about before, people are going to latch on to anything that validates their position, even if they have to resort to the worst kind of confirmation bias in their quote-unquote research. And with the group in question, that being evangelicals, research typically means words that come from the other side of a pulpit or from a megachurch pastor or televangelist, which is basically the same thing, but it sounds a little bit more sinister when you're talking about it as, you know, from the standpoint of the local church. But guess what? There are plenty of local church pastors that are touting this shit too. They're out there. They just don't have as much influence. Right. Now, I've issued calls to action to pastors before on topics like masking and Christian counseling. Um, for all the good it does, I've, I've issued calls to action on them before. There are many evangelical ministers out there, particularly in larger churches with lots of faithful tithers that keep proving over and over again that they don't care about individuals. I mean, they've been taught to care about individuals. I mean, look at Luke, look at Luke 15. The parable of the lost sheep is a prime example of this. But at the end of the day, most are far more concerned with advancing agendas than they are advancing the gospel, even if it means that people are hurt or killed. A humanitarian response to all of this would be to simply look at the data, get your information from good sources, and make intelligent decisions about what you say from the pulpit. But that's not at all what happens, is it? Nope. The agenda wins out every single time. And in this instance, the anti-vax agenda will result in deaths if left unchecked. Lots of deaths. I don't even want to think about what the numbers could look like another year from now. We just topped 500,000. Yeah. And that to me is shocking because how many months did it take to get to 200,000? And then another month or so, and we're at 400,000. And now another month in, and we're at 500,000. Half a million people have died. How many is enough? And why the fuck will you not let somebody jab your arm so that you don't get it and you don't spread it? It right. makes no sense to me. People, just just hear this. Here, if you heard nothing else this entire hour or so, hear this. The vaccines are safe. They have some side effects and some that I've read about that are not entirely pleasant. They mimic things that will make you feel like you're sicker than you are and could scare you into believing that you have this thing. Although most of the symptoms and side effects that I have read about with the COVID-19 vaccine don't really fall in lockstep with what the classic symptoms of COVID-19 are. No. 
And when your body reacts to the vaccine this way, that is your cue that your body is learning how to fight this virus. And it may not be entirely pleasant, and it may not be something that people look forward to as a result of doing this, and it doesn't happen to everybody. I personally don't know of anyone who has told me they've gotten sick getting this vaccine. So it really doesn't affect a large segment of the population that way anyway. But if you get the vaccine, and especially the second dose, I've heard the second dose is the one that really deals the one-two punch to your, to your immune system. Right. But even if you do develop some symptoms, that is your body learning how to deal with this so that you don't get the actual virus and get sick and make other people sick. Is it a little bit of an inconvenience, maybe to a small segment of the population, but most people are going to feel just fine after both doses. So again, to me, it's just a matter of, do I want this momentary and temporary inconvenience of not feeling well for a few days? Or do I want full-blown COVID-19 and laying in a hospital on a respirator? To me, the trade-off is not even worth discussing. I'm getting this this vaccine. Yeah. Everyone in my house is getting the vaccine. And everyone within the sound of my voice should get the vaccine because it is safe. Okay? Your pastor, listen to me, listen to me. Your pastor is not a biologist, chemist, or any other type of science or medical professional. He has zero business giving you any advice about any of this. Bill Gates doesn't need your money, and Donald Trump is a fucking idiot. Okay? Does that cover the basis for you? If you are making your decision about whether or not to vax up based on conspiracy or blind loyalty to a false demagogue, or at the behest of a pastor who is still out there promising that you'll be immune by no other means than God's grace, it's time to wake up. The numbers are dropping rapidly in locales that have easy, consistent access to the vaccines. They're few and far between, but they're out there. And also in Europe, they're seeing drastic declines in the numbers of cases as more people get vaccinated. That's just the simple truth of the matter. And while current projections seem to indicate another summer of masking up at the beach, this can and should be done by the end of the year if we all pull together and do what we need to do to keep ourselves and others around us safe. That means continuing to mask up, continuing to social distance, and getting vaccinated. Oh, and wear your mask after you get your vaccine because there are still plenty of people out there who don't have it, won't get it for a while. And the last thing on that we need at this point is a bunch of people walking around saying, I don't need to do this because I've been vaccinated. Well, for starters, you need to have proof, but that to me is a secondary thing. Once I get the vaccine, I will continue to mask up. Why? Because I want the other guy who hasn't been vaccinated to continue to mask up. Yeah. I will wear a mask until I am told I no longer have to, not until I'm satisfied that I'm immune. I will wear that mask until I am told that I don't have to, and so should you. Now, to the evangelicals out there who are trying to decide whether or not to get the vaccine, let me give you a few things to think about. First, forget what your pastor says. He's a man. What would Jesus do? I'll speak your language. What would Jesus do? The Jesus you worship. The one with enough love and compassion for humanity to sacrifice his life to save it. 
the one who put people ahead of politics, the one who overturned the tables in the temple when people tried to profit off of other people's faith. What would he do? Would he latch on to conspiracy theories or would he simply extend his arm and take that needle to save as many people as he could? He took nails in his wrist to do that once, didn't he? And no, I haven't suddenly redeveloped a belief in any of this, but when viewed from that perspective, I do think you're being given a few glaring examples of what you should be emulating as part of your faith. It is, of course, my sincere hope that you eventually learn the value of doing right for right's sake. But right now, while you still need a reason, while you're still in the thick of this, look to the example of your Savior. You'll get better advice from him than you ever will from any pastor. And... Think about how badly you want all of this COVID nonsense to be over. Think about how amazing it's going to be to actually see people smile again. Think of what it will be like to not have to worry about social distancing anymore and to be able to enjoy church without the paranoia of this thing that may or may not be lurking in your midst. I can't believe I'm saying this, but I feel like it's the lesser of two evils at this point. Think about what it would be like to not be afraid of getting this awful thing anymore at all. Think about not worrying every time your child leaves for school and wondering what he or she is going to bring home with them at the end of the day. How badly do you want these things and how badly do you want this to be over? The good news is you can do more than pray about it. You can roll up your sleeve, extend your arm, and make a small personal sacrifice for the good of your family, your friends, and the girl who's still checking out your groceries while she battles with crippling stress and anxiety, wondering when she too will test positive. Alleviate a little of that for her. Protect her and protect yourself. It's the best way to emulate the attitudes and actions of your savior. For the rest of us, I'm just going to make it very simple. Get the facts and get the vax. We're going to be the ones that move those numbers most significantly. I myself hate needles, but I get a flu shot every year and I'll get poked twice for this to not have to mask up in public anymore and to protect everyone around me. Let's help bring back smiles and civility. Let's do our part to lessen the unrest that's just been building up for a year and the anger, rage, and violence that comes with it. See, we talk about getting unbound on this show as breaking free from the bondage of oppression that evangelical faith keeps us under, but we have an even bigger opportunity right now. We have the opportunity to stop this thing in its tracks, and we should be using it. We should be showing the anti-vaxxers, many of whom are part of this religion, how easy it is to just be a little compassionate and empathetic to our fellow humans. We should be showing them just how easy it is to follow their perceived example of Christ-likeness and not need Christ to pull it off. Because if we do all these things and take two tiny jabs to the arm in the name of public safety, this entire country and the rest of our world can make COVID a thing of the past. And I can't think of a single more important, mature, compassionate, and patriotic way right now that we can do that than to just get this very safe, very effective, and very necessary vaccine as soon as we possibly can. We have the opportunity and we should take it to help heal our world of this awful virus and get ourselves and the people around us finally, effectively, and completely unbound from it once and for all. Get the facts, get the vax, do the right thing. See you next week. We
hope you enjoyed this episode of Unbound. Show topics are chosen based on their timeliness, relevance, and social impact. Have suggestions for future topics? Email us at unbound.podcast.network at gmail.com with all your comments and feedback. Please don't forget to like, share, and throw a few five-star ratings our way and follow us on all major social platforms. And don't forget to hit subscribe if you haven't already. Links to our social pages as well as a full list of cited sources in today's episode are listed in the show notes available at our website, getunbound.org. That's get-unbound.org. If you value this resource and would like to see it continue, please consider supporting us on Patreon at the link in the show description. And be sure to check for new updates every Sunday when we'll come together again and take one more step toward getting and staying unbound. Unbound.